Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. John, we're here today for our appellate law roundtable, and we have two guests with us. I'm going to introduce them separately. Joan Lockwood from Gray, Ritter, and Graham. Hi, Joan. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Rich Fennerin from Brian Cave, Layton, and Paisner. Am I pronouncing the additional two names correctly? Yeah, right. They're new names. Yeah, but yes, you got them right. All right. Let me start with Joan for uh, a bit of background. Joan, can you give us a thumbnail about your legal career and how you've used your career to do appellate work? Well, I started at the law firm I'm currently at in 1993. I'm a principal at Gray, Ritter, and Graham. We do mostly civil litigation. We have kind of two components to the firm. The first does more traditional personal injury, products, liability, medical malpractice work. And the second does more of our commercial litigation. So in terms of appellate work, usually if I've handled a case, tried a case, or, you know, motion practice to summary judgment, then I will handle the appellate work. But oftentimes I'll get involved at the request of another attorney in the office to handle either the brief or sometimes the oral argument if there's a conflict in the office. So I really enjoy the appellate process. In terms of our commercial side of the practice, they generally do their own appellate stuff. But I've had occasion to argue in the Missouri Supreme Court, the appellate courts in the state and then also the seventh and eighth circuits. So it's exciting to do, but there's definitely a lot of work involved in handling an appeal. Sure is. Rich, your turn. Yeah. So I have a different path from uh, Joan. I spent most of my career as a federal prosecutor in St. Louis and did mostly white collar prosecutions, but always had attraction to appellate work. So anytime there was a prosecutor for whatever reason couldn't or didn't want to handle the appeal in his case, I would eagerly uh, take the opportunity And so that gave me the chance when I was in AUSA to argue a lot of cases in front of the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. Since leaving the U.S. Attorney's Office several years ago to become a partner at Brian Cave, I've become an active part of the Supreme Court and appellate group here at the firm. And sort of like Joan was saying, it's kind of you've got some cases where they started at the firm and we handled it at the trial level. And now we're trying to either secure a victory or uh, reverse a defeat in the appellate court, or some cases we're getting the case for the first time at the appellate stage and trying to either uh, make up for the mistakes of the last set of lawyers or make it look like they didn't make any mistakes, depending on which side of the case we're on. So I've always had a soft spot for appeals. It's something I'm really interested in. I also teach in my alma mater at Washington University, where I've been teaching appellate advocacy and coaching the national court team for more than a decade now. It's just one area of the law that I just, I'm always eager to find opportunity to do an appeal whenever I can. Let me ask a general question. First of all, to what extent do you think about appellate work while you're in trial, while you're in the trial court? Yeah, I think it's obviously an important thing to be thinking about really throughout any stage of litigation is to be looking out for those issues that could become appellate issues and making sure that you're preserving them successfully for appeal. Obviously, none of us, uh, if we are trying to raise an error, none of us wants to confront a plain error standard when we get to the appellate stage. And so that's Definitely a critical part of, I think, especially motion practice, you know, in the pretrial stage of a case. And then, obviously, you then got to make the decision in trial. Is making this objection really going to be worth it? Is it going to be a reversible error if I uh, jump in on this? Or is that going to just distract from the other things we're trying to achieve in the trial? But you can preserve a lot of issues. I mean, especially in criminal cases with jury instructions. It's constantly an issue where both sides sometimes fail to preserve issues they want to raise. And so being attentive to that is a really critical part of any successful appellate practice, I think, is making sure that your trial lawyers are well-trained on preservation of error 
so you don't run into issues on appeal. Do you ever have a another attorney sitting there and the main duty of that attorney is to scout out appellate issues as the trial is going on? Yeah, I mean, that's something we have at Bryant Cave. We literally have something we call Preservation Council that we'll put on to very large trial matters whose basically exclusive job is to sit there and sort of watch over the whole process and make sure that to the extent there are potentially live appellate issues in the case that we're taking all the steps we need to preserve those for appeal. Joan, could you comment on those same issues, the extent that you need to consider yourself with appellate issues as the trial is going on and how you handle those? The key, I think, is to be prepared to take the necessary steps to make sure that you've got your objections on the record in the concise and business-like way that you've made the appropriate offers of proof. You know, I tell younger lawyers in our office all the time, remember that filing a motion in limine does nothing to preserve that matter for review, and it has to be followed up with an offer of proof or an objection during the trial. And I think it is helpful, Eric, to have somebody there to remind the trial lawyer, here's what you got to do. You might get some reluctance from the trial judge to take a break and to put something on the record. And so, you know, what you need to figure out is, well, what's the best way to do this? Maybe you approach the bench and say, judge, I need to make an offer of proof on that. And I want to do it in the traditional Q&A format, not just a narrative offer of proof. Can we do it at the lunch break? Can we do it, you know, before we have the jury resume in the afternoon? So invite the trial judge to have some say on how you're going to make that offer of proof. But it is the trial lawyer's duty. It's the trial lawyer's obligation to make sure that they've got an adequate record without annoying the trial judge too much. You know, so keep that in mind and certainly without annoying the jury too much by objecting too much. But you have got to, you know, object to the evidence when it comes in and you've got to make your offer of proof because your record on appeal relies on those components. Having a second lawyer there, an associate there to kind of remind you and to do the housekeeping stuff is helpful. I think that um, we'll probably talk later about preserving the record with respect to instructions, but that's a super interesting topic. And as chair of the MAI committee in Missouri, I find that very, very key or important for all trial lawyers to know. You know, it's funny, the timing of this issue. I wasn't supposed to be here because I was supposed to be trying a case in Tallahassee, Florida. That case got resolved after the first day. And one of the issues that we had, we were suing a church. It was a Pentecostal church under an agency issue for conduct of one of its pastors. Their defense primarily was a legal defense, and it was First Amendment. And we actually hired an appellate attorney a year before trial. We were trying to prove agency, but we didn't want to like bleed into the First Amendment issues in terms of control and whether the church can hire or fire. But we had an appellate attorney all the way through who was at trial with us. That case ended up getting resolved. But that was our big concern. That entire case, the underlying facts were pretty solid. And our biggest concern in the case literally was an appeal. And that's all we heard from the defendant. And the months leading up to trial was, judge got it wrong, and we're going to appeal this, and we're going to take it to the U.S. Supreme Court, and all this kind of stuff. And even when we phrased the questions, you know, when we were phrasing questions literally on agency, we were very careful about how we phrased them because we didn't want to implicate First Amendment issues. I think what John said also is a really great point because it sort of points up the fact that when you've got that sort of appellate counsel, that person who's attentive to these sort of broader legal issues and issues that could come up in the appeal of the case, and that can also create leverage for you in a settlement negotiation and trying to work with the other side on issues. Sometimes you can also avoid appellate issues if you're attentive to those things. So there's more to it than just trying to make sure you're preserving the issue for appeal. I think it actually can affect the outcome of your cases in other kinds of ways. Joan, would you be willing to follow up on the point you made about preserving error regarding instructions? I think that's a, this is a good time for that. Sure. Most people are aware of how to preserve error with respect to jury instructions, but there are some unique rules. 
when you are handling an instruction conference, that's, I think, very important to take somebody along with you to make sure that you're putting everything on the record. A lot of times judges will have the instruction conference informally. It'll be off the record and then they'll the next day say, okay, we're going to put everything on the record at this time. So first rule of thumb is make sure you're on the record when you're doing your instruction conference and when you're submitting those instructions that you know are going to be refused by the trial court. So have everything marked, you know, submitted and refused by the plaintiff or whatever the case may be so that you can then mark those as exhibits and include those refused but submitted instructions as part of your record on appeal. The proponent of the instruction bears the burden of demonstrating that it's not prejudicial on appeal. So the presumed prejudice prevails unless somebody makes it perfectly clear that no prejudice ensued. So the error with respect to the use of instructions for MAI is really kind of a four-step analysis. But you know, look at the rules. Rule 70 and 71 are what require us to preserve error in a certain fashion when it comes to jury instructions. So make sure you make a proper objection, make sure it's on the record. In terms of appellate work, it's got to be a separate point relied on and you have to set forth the instruction in the brief. And then under our appellate rules, it's in the 84 rules, I think it's 8406, you have got to put it in your brief, not just in a separate point relied on, but you've also got to include that alleged issue involving the instruction as part of your appendix. I should mention that we're based in Missouri. So when you say MAI, I'm just going to mention for your listeners, that's Missouri approved instructions. I believe many states have something comparable. My sense is that's probably one of the top reasons cases are appealed is the jury instructions versus evidentiary issues or whatever. Do you have any thoughts on that? You know, John, I was trying to find that because I remember years ago hearing that the most often reason for a reversal and a grant of a new trial was due to instructional error in civil cases. And I couldn't find the source of that statistic, but I know I've heard that before. I know that if you've got an instructional issue, that can be kind of the defining issue in the brief, but I don't have the statistics to say that that's more often than not a grant of a new trial as opposed to an evidentiary issue or some other issue on appeal. That makes sense. It's either right or wrong. The instruction's either correct or not. It always worries me when I'm the side not appealing. It always worries me when there's an instruction issue. That always gets my attention for the reasons that you just talked about. Yeah, you know, the fact that people can point to Rule 7002 and say, hey, the failure to submit a proper instruction to the jury is presumed error and it's reversible if it's prejudicial. And then, you know, in Missouri, the fact that the use of a provided MAI is mandatory with few caveats or exceptions is really a reason to pay attention to the instructions and to be concerned if you've got an instructional issue on appeal. So, Rich, what about the criminal? Is it the same or any different in the criminal area? The thing with evidentiary issues is that you're always going to be subject to a harmless error argument from the other side. If something came in or didn't come in, they're going to say there's overwhelming evidence, and the fact that this evidence that shouldn't have come in did came in or shouldn't have come in, whatever, really at the end of the day, they're still going to face that kind of argument. But when you're dealing with an instructional error, I think whether it's a civil or a criminal case, it's much easier to overcome that harmless error argument or make a showing of prejudice, whatever the case might be, because the whole process of the jury's deliberations is infected by an instruction that was erroneously given or the failure to give an instruction that was required to be given. So it's just better fodder, I think, for most appellate attorneys who are not just looking to raise an issue that might be an error, but actually one that's a reversible error to go after those instructional issues. So that's why, you know, instruction issues, pretrial motions, Uh, Any sort of constitutional or statutory legal issue, 
you know, those are the kind of things that are going to get a de novo level review generally on appeal and therefore provides you a greater chance of reversal than, you know, the omission or exclusion of evidence, which is going to be subject to an abuse of discretion standard and the trial court's going to have to have a lot of deference. Before the podcast, we consulted each other and submitted some topics. And Rich, this is yours. Differences between joining cases at the appellate stage and those that you took through the lower court proceedings. Yeah, well, this is obviously a really critical difference. Obviously, if it's something where you have that familiarity with the lower court proceedings, then you might know things that aren't on the record and you have to feel, okay, well, how am I going to deal with the fact that these are not actually captured in the record? But hopefully you have a better sense of what all the issues are. At the same time, you've confronted the case from a certain perspective as the trial lawyer that maybe isn't all that valuable for appeal. So I think even on cases where you handle the trial and you want to take up an appeal, it's valuable to bring in that second set of eyes that's going to look at it afresh and sort of say, okay, well, here's some issues that we might be able to raise, or here's how I might be able to defend against some of the issues raised by our opponents. But sometimes you just have that tunnel vision in trial that you don't have that same perspective. Again, one of the values of having that preservation or appellate counsel who's part of your team from the beginning, because they can sort of give you that perspective in real time as opposed to after the fact when you're trying to clean up a mess you might have inadvertently made. But then when you are in that position of the person who's coming in, after the trial without that experience, you know, getting up to speed can be a challenge because you have to obviously familiarize yourself with sometimes is a lengthy trial record or a lengthy uh, pre-trial motion record. You've got to work your way through that and have somebody who's attentive to the potential issues that can be raised in that process. So it's sort of night and day to me, but I think it's actually a reason why you do want to bring in somebody who's new to the case or at least took that perspective as a preservation or appellate counsel during the trial so you have that fresh set of eyes on things spotting the issues that you might overlook because you were so focused on getting the evidence in and making the arguments to the jury. What's your procedure for efficiently getting up to speed? What do you do? Well, I think it's always useful if you have access to the trial counsel to have you know, a conversation and get their sort of, you know, sense of what are some of the issues. I mean, if we're trying to write the appeal, what are some of the issues that you can think of that might be most effectively uh, raised? And then another thing to do is to, before you start pulling the transcripts and reading through the trial transcript, look at the actual rulings that you have on the docket of the case, because often major issues that might have come up, and as Joan was saying, been preserved during the trial were actually briefed at a prior stage of the proceedings or even briefed during the trial. And if you can sort of see that, then you've got very clear rulings from the judge. You can identify, you know, potential issues that were in writing in terms of his ruling that you can spot and say were wrong as opposed to just a general sustained or overruled on an objection. And again, often those evidentiary objections are less likely to be fruitful issues on appeal for you than the more legal kind of arguments that you want to make that get that more favorable standard of review. So that's what I'd say usually is I'd start there and then I'm going to read the trial transcript and you, you have to read it. There's not really a way around it. I'm going to read the trial transcript, then looking for where there were objections raised most principally, because that's where you're finding the preserved errors that you could possibly raise. And then you're trying to figure out, okay, is any one of these so prejudicial that I can argue it's reversible? Or can I argue some sort of cumulative effect from the continuing denial of some set of objections or a grant of some set of objections that excluded relevant evidence? And so that's, I think, how you got to look at it on the appellant side. If you're on the side of the appellee, it's a little bit easier because now the issues that have been right, you know what issues are raised by virtue of seeing the brief 
brief that your opponents have filed, and now you're working on trying to develop responses. But something that's often overlooked, and this is even true, I think, of federal prosecutors in cases that they handled, they sort of go and attack why there was an error, and they don't necessarily make the harmless error kind of arguments that can make even a erroneous ruling of the court not result in a reversal. And for you to have an ability to make that argument, you once again have to be able to understand the evidence in the case. You've got to be able to make the argument the evidence was overwhelming of the error. And so you've got to, again, dig in that trial transcript. But if you can have that conversation with the trial lawyer or get that overview by reviewing the real rulings and the docket in the case, that can sometimes give you the context you need to efficiently get to the trial transcript so that you're not starting from scratch trying to understand what happened in the trial. I'm going to offer a story. I handled a case one time in trial and on appeal, and I I thought it was a train wreck. My co-counsel and I came up with seven points on appeal. We wrote a big brief, and my opponent, who was with your firm, this is many years ago, the first thing he said in oral argument, he held up my brief, and he said, look at the size of this brief. (laughs) And I felt like crawling (laughs) under the table. It was that moment where I thought, okay, we can't do this anymore. We can't have seven points on appeal. My serious question to you all is, How much do you fret over keeping those issues small? You've heard the rule of thumb, at least in Missouri, where they say don't have more than four points relied on. But I think that every case has its exceptions for sure. For oral argument, you know, they say be prepared to focus on your top two points that you intend to make. Yeah, I think this is one of the common mistakes that people who don't have experience in appeals make is they say, well... I've got all these different points of error, and all of them are potentially winners, so let's just throw them all into the brief. And by doing that, you're taken away from your ability to really place the emphasis on, as Joan said, usually the one, two, three issues that really have a genuine chance of getting a reversal. As Joan said, when you get to oral argument, you got to trim that down even more. I I would usually say that I'm going to go to oral argument ready to talk about just the issue that I think is the most important issue unless the judges have questions about the other points in my brief. Because by that point, having seen the reply of my opponent or whatever the case might be, I know what ultimately is going to carry the day, if it's anything. And so I'm going to focus on that one issue, make sure that I dedicate the few minutes I have to answer questions, focusing the judge's attention on what I think is the most fruitful point for my position. And then if they've got questions, I'll answer them. But otherwise, I'm going to sit down and force my opponent then, if I'm the appellant, to have to talk about what is my best issue, not what he thinks is his best response to my weakest point. This good advice also applies at the trial level, as we all know. And it reminds me of a story, you know, Joan and I worked together. Joan, did we work together for about eight years at Gray and Yes, that's right. Yeah. We got to work together for eight years and I would always go to Joan with my legal issues and problems because she was way smarter than me, (laughs) as did everybody else in the firm. But we both worked with an attorney named George Fitzsimmons. And George is about 20 years older than me. And I started working with George. I started at Gray and Ritter at Jones Firm back in 1990, I think, 89 or 90. One of the first cases I started to work on was with George. And it was a commercial case in federal court. And he asked me to do the motions in limine. And I responded to the defendant's 25 motions. And I drafted about a dozen or so of our own. We went to the pretrial and George didn't make a single change to anything I had written. And I was very proud of myself. I guess I must have done a wonderful job. We got there and the judge said, well, Mr. Fitzsimmons, what motions do you have? And George said, Your Honor, we don't have any at this time. <laughs> no, no motions. And then the defendant started arguing these motions and George kept saying, we don't have a problem with that. We don't have a problem with that. And then we got to the one that we, the only one that was case dispositive. And George said, now, Your Honor, we have a big problem with that. <laughs> and so... 
But I learned a lot from just watching George. And that was you go up there with 20 things to argue. And I think your credibility starts vanishing as you're on point nine, whether it's an appellate brief or something that you're doing in the trial luck court. And that's such a good point, John. I mean, credibility, I think, especially in oral argument, is so important. Like, you have to present yourself as somebody who is really giving the judges a genuine, you know, explanation of why there was an error below or why there wasn't and why the error is harmless. And if you're perceived as somebody who's just thrown everything against the wall, then you're not going to be effective in convincing the judges on your most important points. So, that's something, another great point is the credibility advise you by focusing on the best point and not spending your time on weaker issues that might have been the record is really worth its weight in gold. It's kind of like objecting all the time during trial. I might go two, three days without objecting to anything unless it's really, really bad. And I think when you're objecting all the time, you kind of lose the judge's attention. Here's another topic. Rich, you submitted this one, the differences between criminal and civil appeals. You handle a lot of criminal work. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, there's big differences, obviously, in the subject matter, and most of the rules that apply in terms of appellate review are uniform among civil and criminal cases, but that may be what it looks like, but it's not really how the judges think about it. And ultimately, in a civil case, I think judges are far more likely to view some sort of error as perhaps being insubstantial and not being something that calls for reversal. So I think it's more important in those cases that you do focus on errors that get to no overview, ones that are very open and shut because you face, I think, a higher probability of the court finding harmless error. In criminal cases, the courts, I think, especially, you know, they're trying to keep the government honest. And so uh, if you can really point to a place where the court made an erroneous ruling and you can make a credible argument for why there was an impact on the verdict in the case, you've got a better chance. But you've also got to contend with the sort of notion, well, you're dealing with somebody who's been convicted of a crime and there's a lot of sort of, I think, subliminal impact that has on the judges as well. So the real key, I think, in a criminal case and it's probably true in a civil case as well, is just making sure as an appellant that you are laser focused on a legal error and you are trying to point out as much as you can why that was a serious mistake that could have affected the outcome of the trial and then emphasize the burden that the government then has to overcome. They have to show that the error was harmless beyond a reasonable doubt, not merely that, oh, it might not actually have been prejudicial. They've got to convince you, judge, that if this case were tried again, the outcome would be the same beyond a reasonable doubt. And that is a high burden to prove that often I see appellants fail to really hold the government to that burden and the way they advance their arguments. So I think that's really one of the big keys if you're an appellant in a criminal case is making sure that you are focused in that way, that you can overcome that argument successfully. I have in front of me some statistics from uh, an Emory study, Emory University. 6.6% of criminal cases are reversed on appeal. And if you move over to civil, it's depending upon what kind of civil, it's between 11 and 14%. So huge difference. The article that accompanied these statistics said one could correctly guess the outcome of an appeal about 90% of the time, knowing nothing about the issues involved by predicting that the appellate court will affirm the lower court decision. That's stunning. Reversal is a rare thing to occur because even when there is an error, harmlessness is part of the review for most kinds of errors. And so it's, I think you always want to tell the client, as Joan said, look, we probably are not going to win, but we have an unusually strong argument if we do for a reversal. Here's the cost-benefit analysis. Here's how much it's going to cost to do it. Here's what we can get out of it if we win. The other thing to realize is that sometimes what you're buying if you're successful on appeal is not a straight-out reversal and a victory. You're buying a new trial with a remand, and the client's got to understand that as well, that they're not necessarily here. If they win in the case on appeal, it doesn't mean they win the case at the trial level. They may not have to go back through the same process at the trial level to maybe get the same exact outcome free of the error, and that's another part of the calculus that has to be entered into when you're advising a client about whether to pursue an appeal or not. 
maybe this is a good time to also bring in the differences between federal and state appeals. Rich, you've done a lot of federal work. I'll throw it to you first. The federal judges, in my experience, tend to be very interested very often. If you can find a cutting edge kind of issue, one that is something they can write a bigger opinion on, for example, I think they like that. So finding those kinds of cases and those kinds of arguments can often get a lot of traction. Of course, you've got the other aspect of federal practice, which is you've got all these different circuits that may have conflicting approaches in your circuit. Um, You have an opportunity you have an opportunity to sort of get the court to make good law going in your direction on that particular issue. And if you can find those issues that have circuit splits associated with them, then you're more likely to get oral argument. I think you have a higher chance of getting real attention to some of the issues in your case because the court knows that those are the kinds of cases that might wind up snaking their way up to the Supreme Court of the United States, and they want to make sure they get it right before they're on the wrong side of how the Supreme Court decides an issue like that. So that's a unique aspect of federal appeals, that you're trying to navigate the possibility of conflicting authority across other jurisdictions and deal with those circuit splits. But I'd say that's probably the biggest difference, I'd say, is that's an aspect you don't really see as frequently in state practice since ultimately the Missouri Supreme Court is accountable only to itself unless it's dealing with the issue of federal law. How do you advise clients when you're trying to undo a bad decision where you think you're right? Yeah, I think you always tell the client, you know, if you are the appellant in the case that, you know, it is an uphill battle. And of course, it depends on what the issue is, as we've talked about throughout today. And if you look at the kind of the opinions, look at, well, what do the courts review to determine was this admission of evidence outcome determinative? You're a little bit all over the place. And so that's why it's hard to tell a client or to predict, well, you know, we've got a great shot at winning this if it's an evidentiary issue. If it's an instructional issue or something that's based on, you know, did the court have jurisdiction, for instance, something that's a more technical area of the law, then I think it's easier to give advice to a client and to say, well, I think we've got this argument, this argument, and this argument. And that's in part because the standards of review are different and in part because your arguments are going to be different than showing or trying to approve to an appellate court that the error on the part of the trial court was outcome determinative. Here's something I've always, I think about it whenever we have an appeal. We all know facts matter facts matter at the trial level, they matter at the appellate level. How much do they matter at the appellate level? And let me be a little more specific. Let's say you have a case with an instructional error. It's a pure legal question. The instruction was either right or wrong. How much can the facts, if at all, affect the ruling in that case? Well, I think they can because, as Joe and I mentioned a couple times, yes, you want to say there's presumptive prejudice when there's an instructional sort of error, but still in some cases you're going to have opponents that are going to argue that the error was harmless, that the evidence is overwhelming of the error, and so you have to be familiar with the facts on the appeal. Even when it's, you know, your issue is not really tied to the facts, as an instructional error is not necessarily tied to the facts of the case. Presenting the facts to the court in a way that is favorable to your client while also faithful to the standard review by which the court should be evaluating the facts, it just creates a motivating factor for the court to say, okay, I understand there was a genuine dispute about some of these issues at trial, and this might have been a close case, might have been a close call, so I should look at this with a little more diligence and make sure that I'm not letting an error sneak by that could have actually affected the outcome in this case. And so you have to be able to marshal the facts effectively in your client's favor, especially 
especially on appeal. And you can do that in ways that aren't necessarily tied to legal issue, but you can use the facts as an illustration of how the error might have or could have or did affect the outcome, depending on what your standard of proving prejudice or harmlessness might be. So I think they're critical. And lawyers who on appeal view the issue as only being a technical one are missing an opportunity to find a different avenue to persuade judges that the error requires reversal. I have spoken to appellate judges about this issue, and they're going to try to uphold it if it's a fair result. Joan, what do you think? I actually think that's an important topic for oral argument to kind of take that opportunity to, depending on the side you're on, to argue that, hey, this was a fair, just result. And that's a point that oftentimes appellate lawyers will make in oral argument because maybe it's not made as concretely in the brief writing. But I think the facts are ever so important on appeal also to distinguish case law, which is a whole nother topic. But, you know, your facts are what distinguish you from maybe a case that was decided five years ago under the same set of law. The other thing is, even if you think you've got a technical issue on appeal like a jury instruction, sometimes the facts are going to require modification of that instruction because of the way they are applied to the existing law. And I can think of that case that resulted in reversal. It was a Missouri Human Rights Act case, and usually the disability of the plaintiff is not in dispute, you know, whether or not the plaintiff was a member of a protected class, because either they're male or female or they're over a certain age. But here, the plaintiff was disabled, and I remember the court spent quite a bit of time analyzing the facts, and the fact was hotly contested as to whether or not they were disabled under the statute, such as to be a member of the protected class. And so, because the jury instruction at the time didn't submit that issue, the court granted a new trial based on the failure to modify the instruction to put the disability in issue before the jury. And so, even though it's a technical issue on appeal, sometimes the facts or exactly what carve out the exception as to why that technical statute, that technical instruction doesn't apply. You know, this uh, discussion about facts is music to my ears. About a month ago, I gave a presentation to an appellate conference. It was called Why the Statement of Facts is the Best Place to Start Winning Your Case. And I think it's often underappreciated. And I see it as, uh, in, in fact, I talked to a former justice with the Missouri Supreme Court who said he thinks that the statement of facts is the best place to win your case. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. It's a chance to tell the story. It reduces cognitive load of the judge. You know, there's a lot of stuff in this brief, but when you tell a good story, it makes the important issues become more vivid and easier to remember and understand. Some people might give a little pushback and say, yeah, but you're supposed to write a fair and concise statement of facts without argument. True. But clever lawyers, skilled writers, have a way of writing the facts to emphasize certain things and to de-emphasize others. And I think it should be looked at as not the thing you have to do, but the thing you get to do when you write a brief. Your thoughts? I could not agree more. It is, I think, one of the most overlooked aspects of appellate advocacy is successfully structuring a persuasive statement of the facts. And I use that word when I teach students this concept in my appellate advocacy class. You know, you don't want to be argumentative. You don't want to portray the facts in a way you might in a closing argument where you're arguing, you know, against, for example, the construction of the facts that the standard review calls for. But that doesn't mean you still can't be persuasive in the way that you write your statement of facts. And too often you'll see a statement of facts that is basically just a procedural recitation, a sort of a chronological narration of events that took place in the court below, as opposed to really trying to contextualize the facts in the structure that the court is then going to apply the law to in a way that sort of facilitates somebody who knows the law, reads the statement of the facts, and already can tell you, okay, now I know what the outcome should be because you present it in such a way that I can follow along with it 
it and it connects with what I know ultimately the standards are going to be. That is a real skill that I think is very often overlooked. And there are opportunities, even when you are giving an objective presentation of the facts, to nonetheless be persuasive. You know, it's something as simple as when you've got two conflicting pieces of testimony saying, although my opponent's expert testified blank, my expert testified to the contrary. That's a statement of fact. It's not argumentative. It's not saying who is right and who is wrong, but it's emphasizing the fact that there was a dispute on this issue in a way that is not simply, okay, well, here's who testified on Tuesday, here's who testified on Wednesday, which does not connect those ideas together for the judges in a way that facilitates an application of the law to the case. And so the best appellate writers are the ones who write a statement of the facts, and by the end of it, if you already knew what the legal rules were that applied, you already know they've won their case by the way they presented their statement of facts. So I think it's critically important for effective appellate advocacy. Yeah, I totally agree. The statement of facts, you can't simply list them or describe them in a boring manner or a bland manner that is just going through the timeline. You've got to tell the story. You've got to make it interesting. You've got to capture the reader's attention and engage them with your statement of facts. And, you know, in Missouri, we are often cited to the rule, well, you can't use your statement of facts to argue. Your facts cannot be argumentative. But that doesn't mean that your facts cannot advocate for you. You can point out or emphasize those facts that are important to your legal argument that support the cases that back your legal argument. And you've got to be able to highlight those favorable facts in the statement of facts. I think it's important to acknowledge the unfavorable facts in your statement of facts in your brief writing. And it's equally important to eliminate those irrelevant facts. In Missouri, we've got a rule that says that don't put anything in your statement of facts that is not necessary to your points on appeal. So eliminate those facts that aren't relevant. Remember to cite to the transcript, cite to the record accurately. It's very important to keep revising that until that brief is finally filed. I often think about who my audience is. You know, you might think, well, it's to judges. I think it's better to think about my audience is a tired and hungry judge, someone who would rather not be looking at my brief. And so I got to earn their attention. I spent a lot of time trying to make it readable and interesting and engaging, Rich, as you said, and Joan, persuasive too. One challenge that I give to my students in my appellate advocacy class is, you know, the obvious thing to do and the sort of easy thing to do is to just write a statement of facts that is chronological. And I challenge them in one of their brief writing assignments to say, all right, I want you to write a statement of facts that is not purely chronological. I want it to start somewhere in the middle of something, and then I want you to build around that. And I just sort of make the same challenge to our listeners to say, all right, next time I'm writing a brief, how could I do this in a way that's not just telling a story from A to B, but starting sort of in the most important moment of the case and then creating a different context around that idea. And that's, I think, goes to what you were saying, Eric, of just making it evocative and interesting and grabbing your reader's attention. It's something that you don't see often. And it, I think can be really successful at framing your issues effectively. I'm always impressed with the way that my students wind up with much more engaging, interesting statements of the facts when they take an approach like that. I'm listening to all of these great suggestions and advice. Keep it simple, right? Make it compelling. If they don't think after they've heard the facts that you likely should win, I think you might be a little bit behind. Let me add a footnote on the statement of facts. There's a number of court criticisms about how these things are done. I did a survey from 2019 to the present, and I found 22 cases in Missouri, 22 appellate cases where the courts criticized the statement of facts. Attorneys wrote 13 of those. Those weren't all pro se. 13 out of 22 were written by attorneys, and in 15 of those cases, the court dismissed the appeal. The entire appeal wow. went down the toilet, and attorneys wrote eight of those. That's stunning. One of the comments by one of the courts, a case named Sharp versus All-in-One Plumbing, 
It's not the function of the appellate court to search the record to discover the facts that substantiate a point on appeal. They don't want to do that work. And we all know when you do a statement of facts, it's a big time commitment. Of course, they don't want to do that. They want you to do that. The rules are pretty simple. At least the technical rules that caused all these dismissals are pretty simple. Make sure you document where that you know sentence was said in testimony, for instance. And a lot of them missed out on that. They just start making legal conclusions and they lost their entire appeal. Well, there's a technical component and a non-technical component to brief writing. And, you know, the exciting part, I guess, to talk about is the argument and the advocacy. But boy, the rules of brief writing and the rules in Missouri are just critical because, as you said, Eric, non-compliance can result in the loss of an argument or even dismissal of the appeal, as we've seen in Missouri. One thing I tell younger lawyers is, boy, the first rule of appellate brief writing is study those rules. Read them, reread them. Look at not only those rules in the Missouri Supreme Court, but also the local rules of appellate procedure in Missouri. And each of our districts have different rules. So look at, if you're in the Eastern District, look at the ABCs of appellate practice. If you're look at the Western District, they've also published a guide concerning general and local rules. But boy, that's really important. If I haven't handled an appeal for a while, I call the clerk and I'll ask them, and they're very friendly and they, they love to talk about this. What are the three reasons most lawyers mess up their brief writing in your court at this point in time? And they'll tell you three things and you go, okay, I'm not going to do those three things. Joan, I can't agree with you more about know the rules. Well, and lots of courts have these sort of checklists they've sort of started putting out that the clerks put together to help lawyers avoid some of the most common errors like you're talking about. But as Joan said, that's no excuse for reading and understanding the rules in detail because, you know, those checklists are helpful, but they certainly are not exhaustive. So you've got to make sure you cover your bases on that. And you do have to look for updates because the rules do change. They are amended. And remember, in federal court, in addition to the federal rules of appellate procedure, every court has got its own local rules to have their own little tweaks and quirks. So you've got to be attentive to those local rules as well as to the general rules that apply to your appeal. And I think a great example of where the local rules can kind of bite you if you're not aware of them is on the the brief length, right? Because the brief length in Missouri is by word count. You've got 31,000 words or so, you think, until you read that local rule and it cuts it in half. You know, so you've got half the words you thought you did. And that's a pretty bad shock if you didn't read the Western or Eastern District local rule in state court. So don't forget about the local differences, which can affect really important things like not just word count, but submission of exhibits and extensions of time to file a record on appeal or to file a brief. You know, the other comment I thought of when Rich was speaking is that particularly in Missouri State Court, if your notice of appeal or brief is challenged, correct it. You know, move to substitute or to file out of time attaching that corrected version of the brief or the corrected version of the notice of appeal with your motion. The worst thing that can happen is that the court refuses to do it. But if you wait until after oral argument, you know, you're allowing the court to take that challenge with the case and that may be too long of a time to have waited. So my advice would be file a motion and request to substitute the brief or substitute the notice if it's being challenged. Well, this has been a great conversation. Luckily, we're going to have you both back for one more episode, but we're going to bring this episode to a close. Thank you both so much, Joan Lockwood and Rich Fennerin. Look forward to continuing this conversation in a future episode. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. See you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.